0: This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Multiple sclerosis is the most common cause of neurological disability among young adults. In Europe and North America, the estimated prevalence of MS is 1 in 800. How serious can it be? Some individuals have a benign course and or respond well to treatment, whereas others become rapidly disabled within several years of diagnosis. To tell us about what we can do to help, we have on the line Dr. Alyssa Willis, Associate Programme Director and Staff Neurologist at the Mellon Centre for Multiple Sclerosis in the Cleveland Clinic. So, Dr. Willis, can you tell us what exactly is multiple sclerosis?
1: Multiple sclerosis is a chronic immune-mediated inflammatory disorder of the central nervous system. Um, it's characterized by demyelination within the optic nerves, the brain, or the spinal cord. Not all areas are involved in every, in every patient. In fact, no two patients look alike. Um, symptoms of multiple sclerosis vary widely from vision loss, to sensory abnormalities, to weakness. And usually these symptoms are transient. They improve after an attack or an exacerbation, followed by a period of remission for 85% of of patients with multiple sclerosis. Other patients follow a more progressive course from the onset of their disease.
0: Okay, thank you. And, And I guess, like everything else in medicine, diagnosis is really important. Can you tell us about recent advances in the diagnosis of
1: MS? Diagnosis of multiple sclerosis is um, still largely clinical. Um, the diagnostic criteria were revised in 2017 to expand the paraclinical criteria to include MRI findings and lumbar puncture so that the diagnosis can be established early on hopefully after the first episode of neurologic symptoms in the majority of patients with multiple sclerosis.
0: Yes, and tell us about the, the typical findings on MRI scan.
1: Yeah, the characteristic findings on MRI of the brain for patients with multiple sclerosis would be T2 or flare hyperintense lesions that are periventricular, juxtacortical, infratentorial, or involving the corpus callosum. We may also see similar lesions within the spinal cord. Typically, they're short segment lesions involving just one side of the spinal cord or, or other.
0: Th- thank you. And is MRI and lumbar puncture still gold standard in diagnosis, as well as obviously the clinical features, or are there other diagnostic tests on the, on the horizon?
1: We still don't have a blood test to diagnose multiple sclerosis, so we rely heavily on the patient's history, their exam findings, and the imaging findings. Lumbar puncture is not required in every patient to establish a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, but it can be helpful for those patients who otherwise don't fulfill the diagnostic criteria early in their disease course to establish a diagnosis very early or in those patients who have somewhat of an atypical presentation, for example, those patients who present with progression from the onset, or those patients who have lesions that might be suggestive of a similar but different inflammatory disorder of the central nervous system.
0: Okay. Th- thank you. And can you give us uh, any examples of what might be the differential diagnosis, what what similar but different diseases might be the correct diagnosis?
1: So we are now beginning to separate out disorders that resemble multiple sclerosis, but we now know have different underlying pathophysiology and would be treated differently. Some examples of conditions that might have been diagnosed as MS in the past that we can now separate out would be neuromyelitis optica and syndromes involving myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein and GFAP, which is a recently described antibody. We're just now understanding the spectrum of these neuroinflammatory disorders that in some cases can mimic multiple sclerosis. Less commonly, we see other inflammatory conditions like lupus, cerebritis, we see central nervous system lymphoma, we see neoplastic conditions mimicking multiple sclerosis. Even less commonly, we can see perineoplastic conditions that mimic multiple sclerosis. Um, but largely, the, the differential diagnosis at, at, the, at the very beginning of a patient's presentation with symptoms suggestive of MS really focuses on how to separate multiple sclerosis from the other inflammatory disorders that may have similar manifestations.
0: Okay. Th- thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And keeping along the theme of diagnosis, i could you tell us what are the common pitfalls in diagnosis?
1: In establishing a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, early diagnosis is, is critical. We want to begin treatment for multiple sclerosis as soon as possible in a patient's disease course. From the very beginning, people with multiple sclerosis are accumulating not only demyelination and, and, but also axon loss. So beginning treatment early, we believe, is critical to preventing disability for people with multiple sclerosis. This means that diagnosing multiple sclerosis early is important, but we need to be able to separate out from similar conditions that mimic multiple sclerosis. For example, the neuromyelitis optica one of the pitfalls in in diagnosing ms is not looking for these other conditions that would be similar but but treated in different ways another pitfall in diagnosis of multiple sclerosis is in interpretation of the mri in a patient with vague neurologic symptoms for example a patient with fatigue and diffuse paresthesias may have an abnormal mri of the brain and this this mri may be interpreted by a radiologist is potentially consistent with multiple sclerosis, but care needs to be given to looking close, closely looking at those at, at the abnormalities on the MRI to determine if the patient truly has a syndrome that looks like a demyelinating disorder.
0: Okay, thank you, thank you. And and moving on to management, uh, can you tell us a bit about recent advances in, in management of this disease?
1: This is really an exciting time to be involved in management of multiple sclerosis. Now in the United States, we have 14 disease-modifying therapies approved for treating relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis, and we now have a medication approved for treating primary progressive multiple sclerosis. So we have therapies available to treat more patients than, than ever before. One of the challenges is in selecting an approach to therapy, to initial therapy for patients, There's a study going on, a government-funded study, including both North American and UK patients to evaluate which treatment approach is most appropriate for patients, either a, a stepped therapy or escalation therapy or an early, highly effective therapy treatment approach, because we don't know the answer to this question. We don't know whether it's important to start... The strongest agent right from the beginning, or to take an approach that involves selecting a less potent but potentially safer option, and then moving up in strength as a patient has breakthrough disease.
0: Okay. So, you mentioned primary progressive disease and and one drug uh, being licensed for for that. Could you tell us more about that drug?
1: Acrolizumab is an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody recently approved for treating primary progressive MS, as well as relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. This medication isn't appropriate for every patient with primary progressive MS. In fact, those patients with very long-standing progressive MS, those patients without recent inflammation, may not benefit at all from use of this medication, but would be subject to the risk of an immunosuppressive agent.
0: Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And, and what are the common pitfalls in the management, would you say?
1: One of the pitfalls in the management of the patient with multiple sclerosis is recognizing when a change in therapy is needed. For example, when a patient is having a relapse on an established therapy, it seems to be clear that a, a change in their disease-modifying therapy is indicated. However, when a patient has subtle changes on their MRI or when they're having progression in the absence of changes on their MRI or in the absence of relapses, particularly for young patients who are already showing some progression, we still have a challenge in determining what is the right course of action for these patients. Is there any benefit to changing disease-modifying therapy? So w- one of the major pitfalls and one of the major challenges in managing multiple sclerosis in this age of having so many different tools in our toolbox is recognizing when we do need to change therapies and when changing therapy is not likely to have any benefits for the patient.
0: Okay, thank you. And continuing on with management, one of the mo- most recent Parts of the topic on BMJ best practice, uh, which has been highlighted, has been the withdrawal of decluzumab. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, decluzumab was a very promising anti-CD25 monoclonal antibody released for treating patients with multiple sclerosis who were refractory to at least one, if not two, other therapies, depending on whether you're in North America or in Europe. This medication was known to be associated with risk of developing other autoimmune conditions, specifically autoimmune hepatitis and hemolytic anemia were known to be risk associated with this medication at the time of of its approval. What was a bit surprising to us as more patients were exposed to the drug was the risk for encephalitis. And some of these cases of encephalitis have been shown to be immune-mediated encephalitis, uh, for example, associated with an antibody called GFAP, G-F-A-P. For this reason, because of these cases of encephalitis, duclizumab was voluntarily withdrawn from the market worldwide by its manufacturer.
0: Another section of the topic on BMJ, Best Practice on Multiple Sclerosis, mentions emerging treatments, uh, one of which is stem cell therapy. I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Stem cell therapy is a very hot topic, both for patients, for practitioners, and for researchers in multiple sclerosis. When we're talking about stem cells, we, we divide it into Two different types of treatment, one being hematopoietic stem cells, which does seem to have benefit for patients with inflammatory multiple sclerosis. Those patients with still very much a relapsing course with MS actually benefit well from this treatment. The question is, how bad does a patient need to be to be eligible to receive hematopoietic stem cells? The risk associated with hematopoietic stem cells predominantly is is risk for infection. So we need to balance that risk against what are are the benefits to the patient versus the benefits of being on a disease-modifying therapy. The other approach to stem cells that is gaining a lot of attention and gaining traction would be mesenchymal stem cells. This approach is really the hope for patients with progressive multiple sclerosis or those patients with relapsing forms of MS who have accumulated some disability. The hope is that a mesenchymal stem cell approach can be used to help repair damage that has already accrued or to have a neuroprotective effect for those patients who, again, have, have already accumulated some disability we don't have strong evidence at this point for mesenchymal stem cells either in the way that they're administered the source of mesenchymal stem cells or the frequency with which they would need to be given to have an effect
0: obviously the the BMJ best practice topic tries to deal with multiple sclerosis in a in a comprehensive way but but i'm sure it doesn't answer all possible questions i wonder what other questions do you typically get asked about this condition by doctors?
1: The questions that I'm asked most frequently really have nothing to do with disease-modifying therapy. They're about all of the other things that that are important in managing multiple sclerosis and just chronic disease in general. For example, the question that's most frequently asked by patients and by many people who are helping care for patients with multiple sclerosis would be about diet. Are there any specific diets that we can recommend? And also, what supplements do we recommend? My answers to these questions are evolving as we have more studies to um, to support or to refute claims that specific diets are potentially helpful um, or that that some supplements may be helpful or not. Currently, what I recommend is that patients with multiple sclerosis follow a healthy, well-balanced diet that's low in sodium. As far as supplements, we have the best evidence for supplemental vitamin D. We don't have clear evidence that any other dietary supplements have an impact on either the symptomatology or the disease course in multiple sclerosis, except in patients who clearly have vitamin deficiencies. The question of heredity of multiple sclerosis comes up frequently from the patients. The way that I typically answer this is that there is some genetic predisposition to multiple sclerosis, we believe. We are finding genes that seem to confer some risk of developing multiple sclerosis, but it's multiple sclerosis is not hereditary in the sense that if a parent has multiple sclerosis, the child has a very high risk of developing MS. There seems to be much more of an environmental component and risk of multiple sclerosis based on exposure to, for example, viruses during childhood.
0: Okay, last question related to, to, to pregnancy. MS is a disease of young people, young men and young women. Um, what about treatment uh, and management during pregnancy?
1: The prescribing information for all of our disease modifying therapies specifies that they should not be used in women who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant. There may be some some exceptions based on individual patient scenarios where we may consider continuing medication until the time of conception, but these these are very unique situations. Currently the recommendation is that for women who are intending to become pregnant, they should stop their disease-modifying therapy after a thorough discussion with their neurologist or their neurology care team.
0: Okay, thank you. That's, that's really, really very helpful. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better care for affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this topic. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.